So we're continuing our series in Matthew, and we are in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, if you want to turn there or tap there to get ready. The, the overarching theme of Matthew, just to sort of get you back sort of into the frame of mind of where we're at, is about the king and the kingdom, right? Matthew introduces us to the fact that Jesus is the king, he is the Messiah in the line of David, and he is the new king, the eternal king that has come, and that he is bringing with him an inbreaking kingdom. There is a new kingdom at hand, and that you can repent and receive it. And then in the Beatitudes, Matthew started talking about what kingdom people favored by God look like. He said, this is what kingdom people look like. They're, they're meek, and they are merciful, and they are uh, poor in spirit, and things like that. So he said, there's a king, there's a kingdom, and this is what kingdom people look like. Then he talked about, as we talked last week, salt and light, which is how kingdom people are meant to interact with the world. So there's a king, and there's a kingdom. This is what kingdom people look like. And then Jesus is teaching, and this is how my kingdom citizens interact with the citizens of the world. Okay, so the theme of the king and the kingdom keeps flowing through Matthew. And now we come to the law and Jesus, which is um, Jesus is going to talk in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount about how kingdom people, citizens in his kingdom, are to act and what their relationship is with the law of the kingdom. Okay, so it's all within this understanding, or you can kind of keep this in your back pocket as you read Matthew, is that you can look through the lens of the kingdom and understand and put into place what Jesus is teaching and what Matthew is saying by keeping it within the context of just he's unfolding or expounding on the kingdom of God. And so before Jesus gets into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount about how the law works in Jesus' kingdom people, uh, he does this little introduction about the law in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And that's what we're going to look at today to just understand, um, as I will get into, the continuity and discontinuity of the law between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'll explain what that means in just a minute. Let's read the text so that we have our, our, our minds and our hearts in the right frame uh, before we start unpacking it. It's Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to people who are listening in to this sermon that he is giving. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's just pray. Father God, this is your word that we come to study, and we really only truly understand it by the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us even now, opening our eyes and our ears and especially our hearts to know what you would speak to us today as a group, as a church, but also individually as we sit under your teaching and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this idea of continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament that 
everybody who approaches the Bible or approaches Christianity has to come to terms with. And, and you see this played out in culture quite often as people are confused about what Christianity really is. And those of us who have been Christians for a while can sometimes get frustrated because people say, well, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. God has all these rules in the Old Testament. It's all about following these rules. And if you break the rules, then God's going to punish you somehow. And you try to explain that that's not exactly the way it works. But then at the same time, we do have to agree that there is something different about the New Testament than the Old Testament. So so we, we have to wrestle with this. It's, it's an undeniable reality that, that Jesus is something new, that the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent, I am the way. He says, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there's this, there's this reality that there's something new that has come along between the Old Testament law and the New Testament covenant of Christ. But it's a God-ordained, it's a God-planned discontinuity because it's God's plan that Jesus would come. But then there's also a great deal of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New as well. There's, there's continuity between the law and grace. Um, some, some, one way of looking at this is, is to understand even just at the very basic level that the law was given to God's people after he rescued them as a means to know how to relate properly to God and to each other, not as a set of rules to follow in order to be rescued, right? He, he took them out of Egypt and then he gave them the law. And, and so there's a sense that the law comes after rescue. So there's, there's even continuity in that sense. And of course, continuity between Old Testament, God the Father, and Jesus, God the Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So there's this sense of discontinuity and continuity. So you can understand that people are confused. And, and we can still be confused today. We can ask ourselves as Christians, what am I supposed to take out of the Old Testament and what am I supposed to leave? Am I supposed to leave anything? Am I supposed to take it all exactly the same? Or, or, is, it, or is it just do we unhook ourselves from it and, and do something different now? Where is there continuity and meaning that we must still understand God and his actions towards us in the same way as in the Old Testament? And where is there discontinuity, what God is doing differently now? And, and the answer is not it's all exactly the same because God doesn't even agree with that. He told Israel in the Old Testament specifically to expect discontinuity. He said he was going to do something new. He is the one that said, I'm going to send you a Messiah, a new king. He's going to establish a new kingdom. So, so God said to his people, you can expect discontinuity in the future. Something is going to be different. He gave them promises like in Jeremiah 31. He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So he says, there's a day coming, you're going to get a new covenant. Or he says in Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you see here that even in the Old Testament, God says expect things to change. Things are not going to continue exactly the way they are now. There's going to be discontinuity. But then God also says, I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3.6. And he says, God is not man that he would lie or change his mind. He does what he says in Numbers 23. Or in Psalm 119.89, even more explicitly, he says, your word, Lord, is firmly fixed in the heavens. So God also says, expect a great deal of continuity. My word is not going to disappear. 
things, I'm still going to be God and I don't change. So something new is going to happen, there's going to be discontinuity, but you should also expect a lot of continuity. So now you're wondering, what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, here's the thing. Jesus knows as soon as he starts to teach, he is going to stir up this issue of continuity and discontinuity. And by that I mean, I don't mean the disciples were sitting around eating loaves and fishes while he was teaching and asking themselves, do you think this fits into continuity or discontinuity between the New Covenant and the Old Testament? They didn't talk like that, no. But what they did do, and what the people who heard and saw Jesus did do, is they said, this is new. This is different. This is strange. This is not what I was taught in Sabbath school. This is something that has come into our lives that sounds very different than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so they were wrestling with this idea of this is not what we understood or expected to come. Jesus doesn't sound very Ten Commandment-y at times. And then other times, he sounds even tougher than the Ten Commandments. What are we to make of this? And this is where this idea of continuity and discontinuity we talk about now today between the Old Testament and the New Testament comes from. And Jesus knows this is a problem. And so just as he's about to launch into the meat and potatoes of the Sermon on the Mount, which he knows is going to confuse people because he's talking about the law, he wants to prepare his disciples to hear what he's saying in exactly the correct light. You know when you have something difficult to say and so you preemptively kind of frame it so that when it lands on the person, it lands correctly? You've got to kind of frame it before you say it? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm going to drop some like law bombs on you guys and I want to make sure when they land on you, they land within the right context. He knows that his disciples are in danger of completely misunderstanding how radical his teaching is compared to the religious elite of the day. But at the same time, also misunderstanding how absolutely harmonious and continuous it is with the law and the prophets with all of Old Testament scripture. And so this is why he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he sets up right up front, front loads his sermon with this warning. Don't even entertain the idea that I came to abolish. And the word there is actually destroy. It's the word that's used in Matthew 24 and 26 and 27 when he talks about destroying the temple or the temple being thrown down. It's the same word. He says, don't think I'm going to throw down or destroy or abolish the law or the rest of our scriptures in the prophets. Because Jesus knows that the disciples and the people listening might be tempted to think this way for a couple of reasons. And we suffer from the same temptation today. We might suffer from this temptation to think that Jesus has come along to get rid of the law and to be done with it and it's finished. And they might think that way, we might think that way because the Pharisees, who were the sort of de facto gold standard of fastidious law keeping in the eyes of the Jewish people... They had their beards cut just the right way. They had the hems of their robes adorned correctly. They hung out with the right people. They ate the right food. They were seen at the temple all the time. These Pharisees, these religious people, which were impeccable law keepers, they regularly accused Jesus of being soft on the law. He does miracles on the Sabbath. He doesn't scold his disciples when they break rabbinical traditions. He mingles with Gentiles and lepers and unclean people. From the, from the pharisaical point of view, or the Pharisees or the scribes, Jesus was like a menace to proper religious society. And so the first thing that would 
caused the disciples to think that Jesus is somehow getting rid of the law is that the rumor's already out there that this rabbi is really soft on law. You should see the stuff he does on the Sabbath. It's crazy, right? You should, you should see the way his disciples behave. But then secondly, they might be tempted to think this way because Jesus preaches a message that is radically focused on grace. Even though Jesus doesn't actually use the word grace, everything he teaches and does says grace. He tells Nicodemus in John 3.16, the verse I'm sure you all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Nothing about the law in there at all. Right? He says to the paralytic man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. This, this man who's a paralytic, there's no evidence that he's somehow a particularly religious person, and yet Jesus forgives his sin. Many of the parables are about grace. The workers in the field, the Pharisee and the tax collector at the temple, you know, all these stories that he tells. Everything Jesus teaches is about grace. And so right off the bat, Jesus knows that there is this error that could be made. People would be thinking And to this day, we might still be thinking, Jesus is soft on the law. He says, hey, I have come. The law is done. So just do as you please. Don't let my dad and his stodgy old commandments get in the way of you having a good time. That's not what Jesus teaches, though, is it at all? But he knows there's a danger that Christians and his disciples might start to think that because he looks so different than what they expected. And so he has to deal with this discontinuity that Christians see in the New Covenant, but also get back to the continuity of a God who is unchanging. So he cuts that kind of thinking right off at the pass before they even start to think about it. He says, don't even think I'm going to abolish any laws. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, normally, if somebody says, I did not come to abolish something, then you think the rest of the sentence would end with, I have in fact come to reestablish it. I've not come to abolish the laws. I've come to reestablish them. Now, Jesus doesn't say that about the law. He shifts his language just a tiny bit so that he's not saying he's come to abolish them but to reestablish them. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. And right away, Jesus introduces this little wrinkle of discontinuity, which in our mind should say, there's something different here that isn't like what it was before. He's confirming his allegiance to the, to the law and to the persistence of the law and the continuity of the law, but even as he affirms his allegiance to it and the continuity of it, he slips this little wrinkle of discontinuity in. And I will come back to that, but first let's talk about the continuity that Jesus wants to stress. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus says here, I am not breaking the continuity of the Old Testament law. I am something new and there is something new happening and I am going to in just a moment show you some of the ways that even the law will be given new understanding and that'll be next week. But everything new that I am about is continuous with what is old. There is no break in the law. The law continues in effect until the end of this era, until the judgment, until God remakes creation. Not a dot, not an iota will fall from the law. So we take from this right away that Jesus has a very high view of Scripture. He has a very high view of the Bible. He says, not an iota, and he's referring to the Greek letter I there, because he's speaking in Greek. 
which is a bit strange since the law is written in Hebrew, of course, but he says iota probably for a couple of reasons. It's a very small letter. It's just a pen stroke. And phonetically, iota sounds like another very small Hebrew letter, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is yod or yoda. It's Y-O-D-H. He's not referring to Yoda, a very small green Jedi master, (laughs) but he is referring to Yod. Yoda, the very small Hebrew letter, is just an apostrophe. So you've seen an apostrophe, that's what a Yod looks like, which incidentally actually is where George Lucas got Yoda's name from, okay, if any Star Wars fans out there. Yoda's name came from the Greek letter Yod. And the Yod letter appears, by some estimates, over 66,000 times in the Law and the Prophets. And Jesus says, not even one of these 66,000 baby Yodas can be removed from the Law. You didn't think I was up on current things, right? You've been watching The Mandalorian. (laughs) He says, not even one of these 66,000 baby tiny Yodas can be removed from the law, not even a dot, which is actually he's referring to the like an apostrophe, the dot on the end of an apostrophe. So he's saying not a yod, not even half a yod is going to disappear from the law. So the reality for his disciples and everyone who would follow Jesus is that he held to a very high and the highest appreciation of and dedication to the scriptures. Or let me put it this way. You cannot say that you are a Jesus follower and a Jesus person and not be a Bible person. Jesus doesn't give his followers that option. You cannot say, oh, I follow Jesus in everything except for his dedication to Scripture. He was way too much of a Scripture nerd for me. You know, like he's too much into all of that letter of the, of the word thing. That part I can do without. In fact, I don't really think Jesus was really a scripture guy like that. You know, Jesus came to set us free from all that intellectual Bible stuff. No, Jesus doesn't give you that option. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law. Not even one apostrophe, not even half of an apostrophe can to be taken from the law. So disabuse yourself from that notion that you can be a Jesus person and not a Bible person. Because Jesus is a Bible person. He even spells it out in terms of his followers' behavior. This is not just some romantic idea about the law. It's about the actual use of the law, right? Jesus isn't just saying, I I just have this nice idea about our history and traditions that I like to sort of romantically keep alive. He says, no, no, this is about our actual performance of the law. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? This is not just an idea that we have about the law. This is about doing and teaching what the law says, what the scripture says. He says you can't relax even the smallest commandment or teach others or you're putting your eternal reward at risk. This is how serious we have to take continuity with the Old Testament. We cannot simply unhitch ourselves from the law as a matter of convenience in order to get to Jesus as if they were two different things, which is exactly what a lot of churches and a lot of Christians want to do today. They want to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. And they literally use that phrase. You could Google it, looking up people who are are actively trying to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. But Jesus, I mean, if they're reading the New Testament and they want to follow the red-letter Jesus, this is what he says. You can't unhitch. You, You can't leave the law behind, right? 
You can't say the Old Testament and the law is confusing and hard and challenging. You know, we just need to get people to Jesus. So let's leave all the difficult thinking and the hard spiritual work of the Old Testament behind. We'll just unhook from all that complicated stuff and we'll hook up to the new, skip to Jesus and grace and we're all set. It just makes it so much easier to be progressive and we can relax a little bit on the demands of the law. And if we relax on two or three of these points, it's just so much easier to sell Christianity to a world that thinks we're weird. And then we don't offend anybody. But what Jesus is going to do in just like a couple more sentences later, in just a moment, is he's not going to relax the law at all for his disciples. He's actually going to tighten it up. Next week, when we look at murder and lust and retaliation, Jesus is going to take a great big old torque wrench to the law, and he's going to tighten it right up. He's going to say things like, you've heard it said that, or you've been taught things like this, but I tell you that the bar is actually much higher. And he draws a comparison between how his kingdom and the people approach the law and how the current super-supposed religious people do. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus fully intends these sentences to be shocking. When you hear him say that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, that sentence is meant to land on his disciples and on the people listening and on us like a hammer. And if your response to Jesus at this point when he says that is, that's crazy, that seems impossible, I don't even know how I'm going to measure up or who could possibly measure up if this is his standard, then if that's your response, then you're reading it correctly. That's the response Jesus is looking for. He wants us to come to grips with what separates us from the kingdom of heaven, that this is a salvation issue. We need a righteousness that does, doesn't just measure up to the old law. We need a righteousness which you know, is better than what even the Pharisees thought they were capable of doing. We need a righteousness that goes beyond the religious elite that we could ever compare ourselves to. And so our natural response is, and the natural question to ask is, what is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees so that I can know the righteousness Jesus is going to talk about is different? Jesus doesn't keep us in the dark. At various places in his teaching, Jesus spells out for us the failings of the Pharisees and the scribes and the righteousness that they have. And it fits with what he's about to teach about the tightening of the law, and it comes down to this. The Pharisees thought that the law was a constraint against external behaviors when in fact the law is meant to be an indicator of our internal natures. Jesus says it best perhaps in Matthew 23, the whole chapter really you could go and read later, but Matthew 23, 23 to 26 says, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So you see, this is what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees were experts at following the letter of the law without actually obeying the law. They could look clean on the outside, but they were dirty inside. 
They could use the law in a way that it looked like they were following it. They were, in fact, following the letter of the law, but they were being disobedient to the spirit of the law. I'll give you another quick example that Jesus runs into them in. On In, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So what's happening here is that the Pharisees were able to avoid caring for their elderly parents and paying for their support and upkeep and supplying what they needed because what they would do is they would declare all of their possessions as korban or dedicated to God so that they didn't have to sell it or give it away. I'd like to help you, Mom, but, you know, that's dedicated to God, and so I can't really give it to you or sell it to use for your upkeep, right? It's like if you had a cottage and your parents needed a place to stay, but you said to them, well, when we built that cottage, we dedicated it to God for use in his kingdom, so it's technically not ours to let you use. This is what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus says, you're trying really hard to obey the letter of the law, while you are absolutely destroying the spirit of the law. This is what he's saying. They're not righteous. They're legalists. They're, or more importantly, they're not in obedience. You can actually use legalism and moralism in ways that you get around being obedient to God. Now, it's easy for us to beat up on the scribes and Pharisees, but they are us. Jesus is warning his disciples, you might be like them. You act self-righteous. You look for loopholes. You, you think that God owes you a reward for your good performance. That sort of righteousness gets you nowhere in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't even get you into the kingdom of heaven. And at that point, we start to despair. And we start to think, how then will we ever manage to be righteous? And now we come back to the discontinuity, or I will say to the apparent discontinuity. And we'll go into this more next week, but it's essentially this. My people don't just paint the law on the outside, Jesus says. I'm transforming them on the inside. Jesus is going to talk about anger as being more than just, as I say, managing not to murder someone. It's about not hating them in the first place. He's saying that sexual purity means more than just not managing to sleep with your neighbor's wife. It's about not thinking about women or men as objects of gratification. Jesus is going to contrast the external obedience of the Pharisees to the letter of the law with the internal transformed nature of his disciples and their new obedience to the true spirit of the law. But that's not the most important discontinuity that is here. The most important discontinuity is this. Remember when Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it? And he said, and I said we'd come back to that. Notice he doesn't say, I didn't come to abolish the law but to enforce it even more harshly. He said, I came to fulfill the law. And what Jesus is ultimately saying there is, my kingdom people don't fulfill the law. I fulfill the law. I know my people are not going to be able to do it on their own the way the Pharisees are trying to do it on their own and take credit for it. I know they're not going to be capable of that. No, the fulfillment of the law is going to come from me, not from you. And since I have come and fulfilled the law, you are going to notice some discontinuity. It's going to appear very different. It it isn't really different, but it will look different. 
And this is the reason that we've not been killing lambs on altars for the last 2,000 years. There's a reason that we can enjoy bacon. There's a reason that we don't have a high priesthood and Levites because there are 10,000 ways that Jesus has fulfilled the old law. There's a reason that we don't trust in law-keeping and legalism for our righteousness because we have a righteousness from Christ that surpasses any of our own. And there's a reason that our motivation for obedience has, has changed. We're no longer slavishly following a list of rules. We are responding out of transformed love to a new relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. So Jesus says there's all this continuity with the law. Not one little bit of the law is going to pass away. In fact, I've come to tighten up the law and tell you that it's more than just not murdering people. It's not even being angry with them. It's more than just not sleeping with people. It's not even objectifying them. Right? It's more, it's a higher law than you could have ever imagined. But he says there's this discontinuity, which is I have come to fulfill the law. In my kingdom, it's not my people who are fulfilling the law. Ultimately, it's I who have fulfilled the law. The ultimate act of fulfillment that Jesus performed for us, he performed on the cross. And that is what we celebrate today as we take the Lord's Supper. This is the moment when we remember that Jesus has, what Jesus has done in fulfilling the law. He took all the punishment that was owed to us and he performed all the duties of righteousness that we could never perform. And by his death, he made possible the new covenant that God the Father promised at the very beginning to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, to clean us on the inside so that obedience would become a joy and would just flow out of the cleanness on the inside and that that would then make us clean on the outside. This is how Jesus is fulfilling the law and we're going to talk about that next week when we get into actually his teaching on the law. But it's important for us as Christians to understand Jesus did not break continuity with the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the God of the Old Testament as though he is not the God of the New Testament. We cannot, as disciples of Jesus, pretend that there are no demands made on us. There are demands, even higher demands than those of the Pharisees. It's more than just coming to church on Sunday and doing your quiet time and helping old ladies across the street. All of those things are good things to do, but... Filling, fulfilling the law in that way is not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. As disciples of Jesus, what we recognize is that continuity, but then the discontinuity, that Jesus came along and he broke the old shackles of the law and he started something new and that we have Jesus Christ to fulfill the law for us and in us so that our obedience comes out of our cleanliness and out of our transformed lives within. That's how it is discontinuity from the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even as we wrestle with these ideas of, you know, what's in the Old Testament, what's in the New, is it change how I act, what do I have to do, um, that as we wrestle with these things in our life groups this week, that we will understand that Jesus in no way does away with any of your law or your prophets. He fulfills them in every way. Jesus loved the scripture and he loved the Bible. And we need to do the same thing. But then at the same time, Lord, we love the fact that he came not to reestablish the law in a way that made us work even harder. He came to fulfill the law, ultimately by dying on the cross. And that's what we recognize now as we take communion. That he's accomplished what we cannot, so that we are set free to obey in joy. And not by the work of legalism or moralism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So if I can have my helpers come for communion. So communion is a meal that Jesus took with his disciples. It's for those that have a relationship with him and know him as their Lord and Savior. And we take this communion because when he was with his disciples at the very last day before his death on the cross, they were having the Passover feast together. And he said, take this bread, which is my body, that is given for you. Not broken, he said, but given for you. And uh, so we take the bread, understanding that he gave his body on the cross for us. And then he said, likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, his blood that was shed in order to establish the discontinuity, in order to establish a new relationship, a new agreement that Christ has accomplished everything on our behalf and that we are brought into the law keeping and we are brought into a relationship with the Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And that's why we remember this regularly until he comes. Let's take communion.